COVID-19 continues to circle the globe and the pandemic shows no signs of abating. We're going to talk more about coronavirus right here on another special episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I love having this opportunity to use my platforms for educating and informing you, the Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful here and share it with those you care about. I'll be regularly publishing these special episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are no corporate sponsors of these episodes, no advertising of my business. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. Now here's for a disclaimer. Please indulge me. All information in these episodes about COVID-19 use the most up-to-date information we can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions. Please note that the situation is changing by the moment, and any information shared in any episode may not apply once that data has been updated and the episode has been posted. So please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith Coaching COVID-19 podcast is intended for diagnosis or treatment. Please, please, please consult your healthcare provider. CDC, the World Health Organization, or your local Department of Health. If you hear or read something I've shared that appears to be erroneous or misguided, if you can, please leave an evidence-based comment for me by email at nursekeith.com. Thank you for understanding and stay safe and keep informed. This episode is being recorded on Saturday, March 21st, just for context in terms of time. And remember that the show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word COVID dash 19 dash three. And today we are welcoming Dr. Ted O'Connell, MD. He is my friend and colleague. We've just recorded an episode of his podcast, which will be in the show notes. And Ted, thanks for being here with me. It's my pleasure to be on your show again, Keith. Thanks, Ted. And you and I just just recorded a podcast episode for you, and we had a great conversation. We're going to go over some of the stuff we talked about there because we have different tribes, different audiences. And I think in this age of COVID-19, redundancy is important. We need to give the same messages over and over and over again as long as they're evidence-based and they make sense and they're logical, and then pivot when we need to pivot. So speaking of pivoting, Ted, what has changed for you in terms of how you go about your professional life in the age of COVID? Oh, Keith, a tremendous amount has changed just over these last two to three weeks. Um, so my clinic, my practice is I am a practicing clinician. I work in the outpatient clinic and in the hospital, and I run a residency training program uh, for family medicine residents, and we have rotations for medical students. So thinking from a clinical standpoint, uh, we have completely changed our approach to patient care. We are doing virtually all telemedicine, except in cases where people really truly do need to come into the medical center. And that's just really getting at the idea of social distancing and keeping people away from potentially getting exposed and so patients are being encouraged to call in to seek advice over the phone. Of course, if they need care, we have the ability to bring them in or direct them to the emergency department. But it's really completely changed workflows around that. 
a lot of elective procedures. Um, those have essentially all been put on hold. Uh, we're redeploying physicians into different arenas and kind of cross training them to be ready for a surge in um, demand for healthcare. On the residency education side, you know, the elective rotations for the residents and outpatient rotations have largely been put on hold because if patients aren't coming in to see the orthopedist or coming in to see the urologist, there isn't anything for a resident to do in those environments. And so we are instead having them participate in these telehealth initiatives to increase capacity. We're also having them work in the hospital and in the emergency department in direct patient care, which is what they would do anyway, but we're, we're changing what their rotations are. Um, and I'm sure it's the same in the nursing world or at least similar, but we've been in very frequent communication with the accrediting bodies and the board certifying bodies to make sure that what that these changes that we're being forced to implement will be honored as legitimate clinical training because it, it actually really is. And it's teaching them how to be agile in the face of a pandemic. And then from a medical student side, essentially most medical schools across the country have temporarily closed and suspended rotations out of concern for safety of the medical students, which is you know, probably um, worth a separate discussion, but that those are all on hold. So I think you're, you're hearing that we have radically changed our workflows in both the clinical and the educational uh, venues. Oh, my gosh, Ted. This is one reason I think it's important for you and I to talk, because I'm not 100% sure what's happening out there in terms of nursing education, but we need nurses pretty bad. I mean, they're the largest percentage of the healthcare workforce, I think, around the world, because they do that, you know, grunt work, that client patient facing work, following doctor's orders, nurse practitioner's orders, etc, PA's orders, and we need them. In nursing education, I have to reach out to some of my professors and deans out there and get them on the show to talk about what the heck is happening. Um, the other thing is for medical training, I'm glad you're reaching out to the certifying bodies, and I hope all the medical schools are, and I hope those certifying bodies are coordinating and making some prudent decisions. And first, I feel really badly for the medical and nursing and PT and OT and speech language pathology and MSW candidates out there, the people finishing their PhDs or DNPs, you know, of course we can't have graduation ceremonies, but that's beside the point. These people need to finish their educations and get out into the world because we need them so badly and this isn't going away. So we can't grind the educational system to a halt, especially in these very specific areas, including teachers. We need teachers. And so, every, you know, when you look at the ripple effect of this virus, economically, socioeconomically, I mean, we could go on and on. There's nothing untouched by this. Climate change isn't untouched by this. So I'm frustrated for all of your 
cohorts. And, you know, you're the founding director of the Family Medicine Residency Training Program at Kaiser Permanente in Napa, Solano, and you're associate clinical professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at UC San Francisco School of Medicine. And on your website, I just want to read a quote, and that is tedxoconnell.com, double N, double L. I'm passionate about helping the next generation of physicians become successful both as clinicians and as future professionals who can confidently navigate medical culture. I hope my textbooks, free resources, and blog posts will help cultivate the next generation of outstanding physicians. That's a beautiful mission. And how do you feel about your mission in this context? And do you feel like you need to pivot that mission a little or do you feel like it's essentially the same? Well, I, Keith, I think the mission remains unchanged. It's just a matter of being agile and adaptable and changing our approach to how we're doing this. You know, you mentioned the ripple effect on training programs in all of these different healthcare professions. And I wouldn't want to speculate outside of my areas of expertise, which are really undergraduate medical education and graduate medical education at the residency level. But I can imagine that the same things are probably happening with nursing schools and physical and occupational therapy and respiratory therapy and radiology techs and perhaps pharmacy schools. And, you know, schools in general have been put on hold across the country, undergraduate colleges, universities. So I imagine that the that these um, healthcare professions programs are also largely on hold. And that really, um, you know, at some point in the near future, we're going to have to figure out how to reboot and restart these, um, you know, tele-learning and and virtual learning um, is a stopgap measure. But in the healthcare professions, it's really working directly with patients. And we need to figure out how to do that. You know, this may be a couple of week issue with with this pandemic uh, before we get a grip on it, and it could easily last a year or more. And so we really need to be thinking about contingency planning about how to continue the educational programs. But it's an entirely new paradigm, and we're we're just kind of working through it. And And, you know, all of these accrediting bodies and certifying bodies are also trying to figure it out, you know, make sure that the the quality of the learners that we're turning out into the healthcare workforce uh, maintains intact, trying to keep them safe um, and trying to keep our workforce moving forward too. It's, it's really big thing to just try to wrap your head around. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I have heard tell of some nursing schools having online clinicals. I don't really know what that means. And, you know, If this is an age, let's say the next year, let's say for the next year into 2021, nursing, medical, and other interprofessional um, educational programs have to really pivot and do this differently. We need to think about how we're going to give extra training, precepting, and internship to these folks so that they can get up to speed. We can't expect them to get the same training 
at this juncture and we can't halt their education because we need them desperately and we need to be training the next generation who will graduate in 2022 and 2023 and boy they're getting quite the education in public health i hope so I've heard of some nurse practitioner programs out there that two weeks ago or three weeks ago, all my, the people I'm in touch with, all they were hearing was, here's the CDC website to get information, and here's an email listing all the dorm closures. And this is some of the top nurse practitioner programs. So Mm -hmm. not to cast dispersions on those deans out there, but you know, they need to step it up and hopefully they already have, this might be old information. Well, I think, you know, those deans have all been thrown a curveball, and I think they're, they made the right response to get the, or possibly made the right response to get the learners out of an environment that potentially could be dangerous until they can make sure that they're adequately trained in donning and doffing personal protective equipment and the new protocols and workflows and, and just kind of how to, to deal with this new environment. Um, but yeah, they do pretty soon need to figure out what we're going to be doing going forward. You know, in the medical education system, we need clinical experiences for our learners to go out and do rotations for patient care. And I imagine it's similar with nurse practitioner programs and nursing programs where a significant portion of the training is direct patient care. And if you put this on pause for too long, not only is that current cohort not getting the clinical training that they need, but you're potentially bottlenecking the system for the next cohort that's coming up. Because at some point, you're, if, if we put this on hold for six months, all of these learners are going to need to get back into their clinical rotations. And that means the next group coming forward may not have adequate access to clinical rotations. So we really um, do need to, to get to work on this issue. I'll say. Well said. Now, here's something else that just popped into my mind. If the nursing students, for instance, aren't getting the training and education that in a perfect world they would be getting, and we're having to pivot and do things differently, and some of the information or time they're getting from leadership and professors and preceptors is a little um, scant or hobbled, If they're going to sit for the NCLEX, the nursing exam, those are usually taken in crowded exam spaces, you know, run by private companies around the country. You know, you go in, they take your wallet and your cell phone, they give you a pen and you walk in and you're sitting next to people cheek by jowl. Um, How are we going to do this testing? And is the NCLEX going to be fair Or are we going to be failing too many of these people and sending them back to nursing school or sending them back to study more when they haven't gotten the education they need to pass the exam? So here's the conundrum and vicious cycle. And I don't know the answer to that question. I hope the people who administer and write the NCLEX are considering contingency plans. But I don't I think I think teaching hospitals and other healthcare facilities need to consider stepping up their nurse residency programs and making them incredibly robust, which they should be anyway, obviously, but I think they should be more robust and they should be maybe in a way broadening their their acceptance um, level 
of applicants and then just taking those applicants through a boot camp. And I think it needs to become a boot camp. And do you think that would be an, an, an interesting, innovative approach or is that misguided? Well, Keith, I want to be cautious about speaking about nursing training because that's not my area okay. of expertise, but I, I do okay. have some thoughts on it in general. Please. Um, the first is I suspect that the organization that administers the NCLEX is probably not the one that actually does the nursing training. That's more the nursing schools and the institutions. And so while the idea of a boot camp, um, you know, in theory makes a lot of sense, and you could say the same thing for medical training, the onus for doing that wouldn't be on the NCLEX, it would be on all these individual organizations and, and, and you know, training institutions. And then the question becomes, well, what does that boot camp look like? And do those organizations have the resources to do it? And do they have the expertise to do it? And how do you make sure that the boot camps happening across the country all provide the same level of training? Um, you know, you asked, I suspect it's the same situation for the NCLEX as it is for other types of certification exams that happen in medicine. We have a pre-medical student working with us as a public health research intern who was set to take the MCAT, which is the exam that you take to try to get into medical schools. His has been pushed back a month at least, so that's clearly being affected. All of our third-year senior residents, before they go out into the healthcare workforce, sit for a board certification exam in April. That has been canceled. Um, with the and the next exam is not available to be administered until November, at least for now. Ooh, I think that's I think the disturbing, American, Ted. Yes, yes, and I think the American Board of Family Medicine is scrambling to identify additional opportunities, and probably all the other boards are doing similar things. But these are just put on hold for now, and and I would venture to guess that the same thing is happening with the NCLEX and any other nursing certification exams that require you to actually sit in a room and be monitored um, just because exactly. of the, the risk. Yeah, exactly. And that brings to mind, you were saying those different certifications. I'm thinking of nurses. There are a lot of specialty nursing certifications, um, a critical care, which is very important right now. Um, there's so many certifications and those often are exams in exam spaces to the best of my knowledge. And we cannot put off nurses getting certified in things like critical care. So I'm not hearing these conversations yet. So I'm hoping this conversation will reach a couple ears. I mean, I don't reach millions, but I reach thousands. And I hope that this is going to get out there. And I hope I'm sure you're going to help me promote this conversation. Like I'll promote the one you and I just had on your show, not for self aggrandizement, but to get these ideas into the conversation, just insert them and see if we can have a little tiny bit of impact that might have going back to that metaphor of the ripple effect, the, the, you know, the pebble thrown into the pond. Right. So I want to pivot here. Speaking of pivoting, I've heard a couple disturbing stories and had some disturbing conversations, and I'm not going to call out individuals, I'm not going to call out organizations, and I'm not even going to mention cities, because I feel like that's just, 
a lot of this is universal. So it's not important where these people work, where they live. But let's just say the context is the United States. Okay, so we're going to start there. About two weeks ago, I was texting with a young nurse in a large city in the United States who's been a nurse for a couple years. She moved from one big city to another big city in another state. She's a good nurse and has been working for about two years or just over. I knew she was about to start an ICU job in this big city where there's a lot of COVID. And when I sent her by text some articles to read and said, how you doing? Where are you at with this? Are you safe? And are you educating yourself? She said, "Ah, eh, it's really not a big deal. Um, this will be over soon. It's blown out of proportion by the media. And I have to say, I let her have it. I tore her a new one, as they say. And I said, look, honey, I care about you. I want to mentor you. I think you're a good nurse and a good human being. I love you and your mom. But if you go into the ICU with that attitude and they catch wind of it, first of all, you're going to get hell. You're going to catch hell. Second of all, they're going to fire you in a second and you may never work again. And I said, you're also going to put a lot of people in danger. Now, I heard another story from a, you know, small to medium sized city in the United States where I've heard this directly from someone with direct knowledge that ER docs and ICU nurses and ER nurses are going out to bars after work, partying, laughing, dancing, sharing drinks, and carousing to let blow off steam in public places with hundreds of other people. And I am so disturbed by this that I don't even know what to say. So what would you say about, one, the personal conduct and beliefs of medical professionals? And I think if this is happening in one small city of which I am, with which I'm acquainted, I think it may be happening in other places too, where bars are still open and people are kind of blowing off steam and letting loose. So what's your message to these people, Ted? Could you please weigh into this conversation? Yes, Keith, I have a, a lot of thoughts on what you're saying. I have not personally heard reports of that type of behavior where groups of colleagues after working in a critical in care environment, whether it's a hospital or ICU or emergency room, going out to bars together. Um, you know, where we are, all of the bars and restaurants are closed, so that couldn't happen. But I, there may be parts of the U.S. where it could if it is happening, that is incredibly dangerous behavior because these people very easily could be vectors for COVID-19. And even if they feel fine themselves, they're then going out into public and potentially exposing other people. You know, this virus exists on, you know, in the human body and out on inanimate surfaces could be carried out on clothing, on shoes, on cell phones. And so I would encourage everybody to not be doing that type of thing and, and really sheltering at home after work and, and taking a public health perspective. Looping around to your comments about that young nurse who's taking the job in the ICU, you know, we are seeing um, kind of some of that thinking in younger cohorts. I'm not 
pointing fingers at all. But when COVID-19 kind of first started emerging, the initial thought was this is primarily affecting and killing older individuals and those with chronic health problems and didn't seem to really be taking much of a hold in the pediatric and young adult population. And so I think there was some feeling of, well, this isn't going to affect me or, or I'm gonna, I'm pretty safe from this virus or it's just going to give me a mild, you know, mild cold symptoms. But what we're seeing now is that it is affecting um, infants and children. It is affecting young, healthy adults, and it's affecting in disproportionate numbers those who are older and have underlying medical problems. I think what it's really important for all of us to remember is even if you're not worried about yourself personally getting infected, you just never know who you're going to be infecting. You could be infecting the person behind you in the grocery store line. You could be infecting an older family member. You could be infecting somebody in the community who is on is, is on chemotherapy and getting cancer treatments and is particularly susceptible. You could be infecting somebody who is immunocompromised, you know, is on medications for something like rheumatoid arthritis and is immunocompromised or is a transplant recipient. It's just really imperative at this time that we be thinking outside of our own selves and our own, you know, either lack of concern or sense of invincibility or thinking that you're just not, um, not going to get sick. And then you, you kind of ask the question about, is this an overreaction and what do people in the medical community think about the way we're approaching this? It, I would say you would get a variety of opinions about how um, seriously concerned people are. Some are absolutely terrified about the potential for what this could become. And some who are taking a little bit more of a blasé attitude towards it. And I think no matter what your opinion is, is if we could at least all agree to take it seriously and and view it as something that has real potential to overwhelm our healthcare system and lead to large numbers of deaths, that's probably the right approach for the time being until we can try to get better containment of this thing. Because I th in, at the tail end, when we look back at this, whether it's six months from now or three years from now and kind of do some um, analysis of the situation, best case scenario is looking back and say, wow, that was an overreaction. And wow, that it didn't turn out to be as bad as we thought it was going to be. And if we can say that, whether it's six months or three years from now, that it looked like an overreaction, that means we did the right thing. That by overreacting, we contained it and it didn't become a massive public health crisis, even more so than it potentially is right now. It means we, we, you know, we did the right thing. And underreaction is exactly the wrong thing to do and can lead to situations like we're seeing in Italy where the healthcare system is overrun and people are dying. And, you know, thinking about your, your analogy of the ripple effect, it's not just people with COVID that are dying in Italy because the healthcare system is overrun. It's the people who are having heart attacks and strokes and 
you know, abdominal infections and all the things that happen in healthcare on a regular basis, that continues to happen. And we can't provide adequate care to all of those patients if the healthcare system's overrun. So really thinking bigger picture here, I think is vitally important. Very good points. Thank you, Ted. Now, you know, I've heard direct stories as well, or one story of an ICU nurse in an unnamed city in the United States who is going out carousing in bars with their colleagues, going to music shows and, and, you know, and dancing in a mosh pit with a lot of other young people in their twenties. And I'm, I just can't believe it. And it reminds me of this Newsweek article that was in online a couple weeks ago by a doctor in Spain, I believe, and the title, you'll understand immediately the context of this article. It said, feeling young and invincible? Great. Stop killing people. That was the article. And it's linked in some of my show notes for these COVID, COVID episodes. Now, here's another question for you, Ted. You work in family medicine, right? Right. Now, are you going to a clinical space to work right now? We are. Um, you are. Uh, well, okay. we're actually doing a hybrid. Um, what we're doing is trying to get uh, take care of as many people as we possibly can through telehealth and telemedicine, doing telephone and um, video visits, and encouraging everybody to access the healthcare system that way so that we can provide as much care as we can without people having to come into the medical center and potentially, you know, be vectors uh, of, of transmitting this COVID virus and then assessing mm-hmm. them by phone and video. And for those who need to get the in-person health care, we have systems in place to make sure that they come in in a safe manner or we get them directed to the emergency department where their protocols in place and the idea is really, you know, not to shut the system down, but rather to keep people away if they don't need to be there. And if you need to be there, absolutely get it done safely. So that's that's the the approach that that most medical centers are taking. Um, it's an approach that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is advocating for. Uh, and it's just a matter of, you know, each site implementing their own workflows and protocols to make that happen. Okay. Here's a question for you that I'm not hearing addressed anywhere yet. So I want to address it here on my show. And hopefully this will get out to some people who need to hear it. Speaking of the conduct of medical personnel, and you work in a clinical space, and how old are your children at home? My children are 15, 12, and 9. 15, 12, and 9. Okay. And you, you're married. Your wife That's work, right. lives at home as well with you. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, when someone practicing out there in the world as a medical provider, whatever type of medical provider they happen to be, even if they're a medical assistant, and I didn't say just medical assistant because that's a four-letter word to me in anything. I never use the word just unless it means justice. So, Or it's like, oh, I just bought milk. I forgot the cereal. That's okay. But you never say I'm just a nurse. I'm just a family physician. I'm just a school nurse. So that's an aside here for anyone listening who uses that word to describe what they or someone else does. Now, I love tangents. Sorry, I'm Jewish. It's just people deal with it who listen to my show. So when you come home 
from practicing. Let's say you wear street clothes at home. I mean, at work. And you come home in your street clothes. Now, I'm, I've am i always been somewhat of a germaphobe. I haven't touched a gas pump with my bare hand in many, many years. That's just me. You can laugh, but that's just me. So when you come home wearing street clothes from work and your own shoes that you've been wearing around and you don't have shoes you put on at work or booties, what would you do? Or what actually, Ted, what do you do when you come home? I'm just curious. Well, I would first say, Keith, my thinking around this might evolve over the next couple of weeks. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I've heard a wide variety of different approaches from people. And I think some of it depends where exactly um, you are working and and how how you kind of think about this virus being spread. Um, A lot of the care that I have been providing over this last week has been mostly virtual. And I am not particularly a germaphobe. So when I come home, I go to my closet, put the clothes that I'm wearing in the laundry, wash my hands, and change into comfortable clothes that haven't been in the medical setting. Um, And that's kind of where I'm stopping. Uh, as mm-hmm. I, if I, as I flex more into direct patient care, I will probably take a more aggressive approach about that. I may have a pair of shoes that just stay in the garage and don't even come into the house. Uh, I may, as I change, uh, take a shower before doing anything else just to be overly safe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of depending on which you know, patients that I'm taking care of and level of concern, I, I may even start to wear scrubs in the workplace and just leave them there, change, and then change again when I get home. Uh, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm keeping an open mind to it and um, kind of just trying to take a, a logical, rational approach to trying to be as safe as possible without overreacting. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not judging anyone. Everyone has to make their own choices here, you know, but you know, if you do come home and you wear the shoes at home that you've been wearing at work in your house, even if you're the only one in the house, but let's say you're in a risk category and you're walking around in your house with the shoes that you wear at work and you drop, let's say you drop something on the floor and pick it up. And let's say there's a little virus on the bottom of your shoes and now it's on your floor. It gets on that object and then you, you know, very unconsciously touch your nose or put your fingers in your mouth or you go right to the bathroom to brush your teeth. Then it's, it just makes me scared for people. And, you know, it just makes me think of a lot of things and my mind is going a million miles and miles an hour every day. And I'm trying not to get too overwhelmed, which happens pretty darn easily in my brain, but, um, there's a lot to overwhelm us right now, but I do worry about just these little teeny tiny things that make me just make me shake inside. Right. Uh, you know, I don't think that the germaphobe in you is not going to like what I have to say next. I think what okay. we're trying to do is we're trying to reduce the risk and it is impossible for us to get the, the risk of transmission down to zero. 
and, and, you know, taking off your shoes, that's a good idea. You know, who knows what you're walking through in a, in a medical care setting throughout the day. It's also just important to realize that we touch our cell phones hundreds of times a day and pick up pens following that and then touch our faces. And, you know, so we can implement these measures and, and try to be smart about it and take our shoes off, change our clothes, take a shower. But to, to, um, to get the risk to zero just isn't going to happen. So I, it's about being smart about it. It's about being thoughtful about it. Um, everybody's going to take their, their own approach about how they do it. Um, but, uh, I, I think, um, as long as we're thinking about it and, and trying to reduce the risk, that's really the key. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You know, my wife is, has some immune issues, respiratory issues. She's mm-hmm. 60 and I'm in some risk categories. I'm 55. I have some chronic illnesses myself. We've both been injured by mold environmentally mm-hmm. and have had some issues. A lot of doctors don't believe in environmental illness or multiple chemical sensitivity. But from my perspective, it's real because <laughs> we've had it. And we're, we're doing very well with it and treating ourselves in our own ways, mm-hmm. you know, mostly holistically because the, the allopathic community won't believe that we have it. So anyway, that's an aside. Um, so I'm trying to be very, 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 very careful with my wife. I, I, I've never been afraid of death myself, really, honestly. I'm not afraid of getting sick, honestly. But I'm very worried about her because she's had many respiratory issues over the years. And I want her to live as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm being really careful. I have garden gloves in my car. They're on the floor where I, you know, the driver's side. When I get out of the car and I pump gas, I wear them. You know, I'm really careful. And some people might think it's over the top. But, you know, that's just the choices that I'm making to make me feel comfortable. And when I come home, I'm really careful you know, my shoes stay outside. If I've sat anywhere out in the world, I take my clothes off and put them in the laundry. That might sound crazy to people too. We're doing a lot of laundry and we only allow friends in the house to right now, just three or four people who we know are on board with us and they are totally doing the same thing. So those are the people we allow in our house. And that might seem extreme, but this is where our anxiety and our fear, looking at the grieving process, that's where our fear can get assuaged somewhat. Right. Well, I, I would look at that, Keith, the same way as I look at the this COVID-19 pandemic. And like I said earlier, if on the tail end we look back at this and say, wow, that looked like an overreaction or we didn't necessarily need to go quite that far, you could look at what you're doing the same way and say, well, is that an overreaction or are you, are you taking the the um, germ protection too far. Maybe I don't, I'm not one to judge, but if you are also Mm -hmm. saying we're doing this and you and your wife have not been sick, then I would say, well, that's probably not an overreaction. Then you did the right thing for your family. And, and, you know, it's, 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 it's impossible to find exactly what the sweet spot is or know what the sweet spot is. But if that's what, um, makes you comfortable, helps you sleep at night, makes you feel good about going out in the world and still trying to maintain, you know, normalcy. Otherwise I say you're doing the right thing. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at our own psychological mental Mm -hmm. health and we are somewhat germaphobes. So, you know, and I think 
in this world right now, being a germaphobe isn't a bad thing. So, you know, I'm cool and I'm just being careful about right. the people who come in our home. And I worry about the people out there who I see pumping gas, touching their faces, touching their children. That happened to me in the gas line just the other day. Woman was touching everything. She touched her child's face. And I'm like, oh my man, oh my God. But I can't save everybody. So I could have approached her, but I thought, you know, I could do this all day till I'm blue in the face. And, you know, I always tell to my clients, my coaching clients, you can bang your head against particular walls for a while, but once the blood is blinding you, you have to stop banging your head. So that's kind of the metaphor I use. So I want to change tracks here because I have three more things I want to cover and we need to close in a little bit. And I want to honor your time and it's a Saturday and you have family. So have you ever read the book called The Coming Plague, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance by Laurie Garrett, published in 1995? No, I've never read it. I read it back in the late 90s when I was doing HIV work. Can I read you and the audience listening the Amazon description of this book? Of course. Okay. Well, it's my show, right? Yeah. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is quote by Lori Garrett from The Coming Plague, 1995. Unpurified drinking water, improper use of antibiotics, local warfare, Massive refugee migration, changing social and environmental conditions around the world have fostered and spread new and potentially devastating viruses and diseases, HIV, Lassa, Ebola, and others. Lori Garrett takes you on a 50-year journey through the world's battles with microbes and examines the worldwide conditions that have culminated in recurrent outbreaks of newly discovered diseases, epidemics of diseases migrating to new areas, and mutated old diseases that are no longer curable. She argues that it is not too late to take action to prevent the further onslaught of viruses and microbes and offers possible solutions for a healthier future. Now, we're in 2020. This was 25 years ago. And just three years ago, President Trump and his new administration dismantled the pandemic response organization established by Barack Obama. So I recommend you read this book. <laughs> it's on Kindle and, and Amazon and audio. So what do you think of this prescient paragraph from 25 years ago? Just curious. Well, it, it certainly is loaded with um, with insights and almost sounds predictive of what's going on. You know, we're even seeing, I haven't seen the, the show Contagion, but, you know, you're seeing things that kind of predicted some of what we're dealing with and, um, you know, leaving politics aside, getting to your, your question about the dismantling of our pandemic response, um, looking at it, it looks like a big mistake to have done that. When we look at South Korea that dealt with MERS and SARS and knew how to deal with that, they were prepared and they were able to very quickly kind of contain things, start testing 10,000 plus people per day, knowing where the infections were. And that's because they had a pandemic response system in place and were prepared for this. And I think everything that we're seeing in this country demonstrates that we were woefully unprepared. We don't have the personal protective equipment that we need for our um, healthcare workforce. Uh, we delayed in, you know, 
getting things shut down to try to contain it. You know, the, the horse is essentially out of the barn now and we just need to uh, keep them in the yard uh, and not let that horse get out of, out of the yard at this point. Um, our ability to test for something like this in this country, we just didn't have the testing because we didn't have the response systems in place. Um, protocols and workflows weren't in place. So uh, my hope is that from a, a healthcare system standpoint and a public health standpoint, once we're beyond this acute crisis, that we really use it as an opportunity for quality improvement and have these systems set up um, for future future pandemics because it's it's a matter of when and not if something like this is going to happen again. Thanks, Ted. That's great. And do you have a couple more minutes, my friend? Sure. Okay. So on your show, I just want to cover a couple things very quickly that you and I talked about. One is we brought up the issue of retired personnel. And you had said that you had been thinking about that as putting older retired nurses and doctors on the front line who were at risk of COVID. And you were wondering of the the prudence of that move. And I brought up the fact that we could use those people in massive telephone triage and telehealth roles from home with computers donated by Apple, Dell, and other organizations that make computers and also cell phones. And we could activate our retired medical and nursing workforce in ways that maybe people aren't thinking about. So um, have you reflected on that a little more since our conversation about 45 minutes ago? <laughs> I have. You know, your um, outlook on that question, there, there was a comment on a completely separate podcast that I had been listening to about bringing people out of retirement, um, physicians and nurses and other healthcare personnel. And my initial response was, that is not a good idea. You know, these are older individuals who may have underlying healthcare problems. And why would you put them out into direct patient care? And then as you and I discussed it, you brought up the ideas of uh, virtual medicine and having them take some leadership roles and, you know, playing to their expertise that doesn't involve direct patient care so that they're not being put at unnecessary risk. And it makes all the sense in the world if we, you know, if we have to scale this up and have additional um, people in the healthcare workforce doing things like you're talking about, makes total sense. And if somebody from Apple or Dell or any of these other computer companies are listening and and want to get involved with us, reach out to Keith or to me, and we'll try to put you in touch with the right people or do what we can to try to um, provide the care because there are a lot of people out there in this country, you know, and I think you have an international audience, Keith, but uh, I'm going to speak for this country, people who aren't able to access the healthcare that they need and their healthcare system may not have flexed into telemedicine adequately. So I think we have a lot of opportunity to do a lot of um, public good here. Thank you, my friend. So my final question is for people to reach you, I know they can go to tedxoconnell.com and that is O'Connell with a double N and a double L, and that'll be in the show notes, of course. And they can also find your podcast and your blog there. But if they want to go directly to your podcast, I know it's on Podbean. So what is the direct URL of your podcast on Podbean? Oh, you know, I should have that for you, Keith, and I'll make sure we get it to you so you have it for the show notes. The podcast is available on all of the major 
podcatchers like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and obviously Podbean, mm-hmm. like you said. It is called COVID-19 Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Um, but I don't have that uh, URL in front of me, but I will make sure we have it for your listeners. And thank you for promoting that. Well, surprise, surprise, I just found it. It is covidpodcast.podbean.com. That is covidpodcast.podbean.com. Yours truly will be on it sometime in the near future before the end of March 2020, I believe. And Ted O'Connell, you are so amazing. We've had some great conversations over this last year or so. And I'm happy that I was able to help you you know, just kind of get up to speed and launch a podcast. And that's wonderful. And thanks for doing all the awesome work in the world you're doing. Thanks for educating medical residents and getting them out into the workforce and being a voice of reason in the wilderness out here. You and I may feel we're screaming in the wind sometimes or banging our head against that proverbial wall. But thanks for joining me in that head banging. And um, we'll do it safely with social distancing. And one of these days when the world has changed, um, you and I are going to sit down for a really kick-ass dinner in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I can't wait, Keith. Um, thank you for having me on the show and and helping to get the word out about these um public education resources that that we're both trying to address. Thank you, my friend. You be well. Many blessings on your family, your colleagues, your community. And um, you're, you're wonderful. Thank you. Same to you, Keith. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show, and there will be many more to come. And remember that the show notes are going to be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-3. Please reach out to Ted, connect with him on LinkedIn, check out his podcast, and share it, please, far and wide. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm yourself, your friends, your family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your wider communities. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, who is kindly producing these episodes free of charge as a public service to members of the Nurse Keith Nation, and Mark Cappiespeason, our stalwart social media ringmaster, who's helping me spread the word by keeping you informed via our many online social media platforms. Stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico.